Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Charlie Hewlett. I'm a managing director at RCLCO, and I'm the practice group leader for our management consulting advisory group. If you've been a listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCLCO has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies and organizations seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm talking with Tom and Toby Bazudo. Tom is the chairman and co-founder of the Bazudo Group, which is a diversified and full-service real estate company that recently celebrated its 30th year in business. During his more than 45-year career in real estate, Tom has overseen the development and construction of more than 50,000 residences and created a company that annually starts more than 1,000 homes and the company now manages more than 70,000 apartments across the country. Toby is now president and CEO of the Bazudo Group, providing strategic and day-to-day leadership for more than 2,500 employees in 11 metropolitan areas. Toby has received many recognitions, such as Developer of the Year by the D.C. and Maryland Building Industry Association, and according to the Maryland's Daily Record, is one of the most influential Marylanders, and the Baltimore Business Journal recognizes him as one of the 40 under 40. For two years in a row, the Washington Post has named the Bazudo Group as a top workplace and as a testament to Bazudo's commitment to diversity and inclusion, and perhaps in light of the Me Too movement sweeping the nation, I think it's important to recognize that the National Association of Female Executives recently selected the firm as a top company for executive women. So congratulations. Tom and Toby, thank you so much for taking the time to be part of our podcast series. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Charlie. It's funny, but I'm teaching a class on on strategy at the business school at GW tomorrow, and the students have been assigned the Bazudo Group case study write-up that I prepared with both of your input back in 2007. So so this is actually going to help me get prepared for that class. Tom, (laughs) let, let me start with you. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about your background and the founding of the Bazudo Group? Sure. I got into the business almost 50 years ago, and um, I started working for the government. I worked for HUD in their Baltimore office for a couple of years, then went to work for the James W. Rouse Mortgage Company. did that for a couple of years where I learned the commercial finance business. Neither of the, well, well, I enjoyed both jobs and people I worked with in both places. Neither gave me the feeling of, of, um, of completion, of productivity that I thought mm. I was looking for. And, and, and so I got involved in development, went to work for Oxford Development Company, ended up running their mid Atlantic region. But Oxford was a fundamentally a company that, that financed all the projects using the, tax syndication approach. And while it was a great program while it lasted, when Congress changed the tax law in 1986, the company came under great duress. And that created the opportunity, although it took a little time, for four of us who were working together at Oxford 
Rick Mostyn, John Slidell, and a fellow by the name of Bernie Loveshire to join together to essentially buy the region that I was running, that we were all working in. And that led to the creation of the Bizzuto Group, and that was in April of 1988. At the time, our focus was to be a developer, builder, and manager of apartment properties in the Mid-Atlantic region for our own account. And that was the focus has evolved over the years, obviously. As you, you think back to the founding, did you have a vision for what the Bazuto Group would become and what you would accomplish over the years? As my partners would, well, Bernie unfortunately died very early, very soon after we started the company. But as Rick and John would tell you, our goal was to eat. Our goal was to survive. <laughs> our vision was, sure, we had a vision. Uh, our vision was to do better what Oxford had. Oxford did things very well until they got so wrapped up in their financial problems. And we, we wanted to do them. We wanted to do the same things. We just wanted to do them better. And we didn't want to be financing our projects so that they were so highly leveraged as Oxford did, that should the economy turn south, uh, we would end up in financial trouble. And so we ended up uh, w- with a focus on doing purely joint ventures. But our our goal was to make it uh, from from day to day, year to year. And, and in fact, John would not let us put the name of the company on the side of the building until we had been in business five years. And he had some level of confidence that we were going to survive. <laughs> That's a great story. So, Toby, t- tell us a little bit about your background and your journey. My journey is a little bit different in that as an undergraduate at Colgate University, I, I studied English and music, although my dad was an English major as well, so we have that in common. I worked briefly in the music industry in New York City and quickly became disillusioned when, sort of once you see how the sausage is made, it's not as glamorous. I approached my father and his partners and said I was interested in working at Bizzuto. And and candidly, it took my dad and and even me by surprise a little bit. And my father had me speak to his partners under the thesis that I would listen to them more than I would listen to him, is his joke. And they collectively recommended that I go work somewhere else first, then go to graduate school, and then and only then would they consider me working here. And I did that. I worked for Columbia National Real Estate Finance, which was a mortgage banking company in D.C. for a few years. And then I went to NYU for their graduate program in New York. And concurrently, while I was there, I I had a very nice internship at J.P. Morgan in their finance group, which was also very helpful for my education. And I joined the company about 17 years ago when I was 28. And I've been very uh, fortunate and happy working with my father and my team since. So more than just uh, eating and surviving, but uh, also became a passion of yours, the real estate business and and finance. The real estate business and and this company in particular has been an overwhelming passion. And and much like I imagine my father feels, it's, it's so much a part of my life now that I can't imagine it being separate or not being here, I should say. So I'm completely consumed by it. I absolutely love it. And I I feel privileged to work here every day. I think what one of the things that Toby brings to the business, you know, and frankly, he gets it um, to some degree from me, 
is this passion that recognizes we're not building widgets. I mean, we think we quite honestly, um, and without wanting to sound sanctimonious, we think what we're doing is is very, very important. We think, when I say we, I'm talking everybody in our industry. We believe we are when we have the opportunity to create people's homes, it's not like we're building fountain pens or telephones. We're, we're doing something that is providing one of the most important needs a human being has. And, and so we take it seriously and we try to make, make sure that the people who we associate with in our company understand that this is really important stuff we're doing and we're fortunate to be able to do it. Very good. Tom, I, I often hold out the Bazudo group as a, as a great example of how to successfully bring family members uh, into a family business and, and how to do succession uh, of leadership the right way. How did it come to be that from, from your recollection that Toby joined the company? Was, was there a formal succession plan or did it just sort of happen? <laughs> I guess they, you know, to answer a question with a question, I'd say, at what time are you talking about? In in 17 years ago, plus seven, 24 years ago, when Toby first spoke to me about this, the company had been in business six or seven years, I guess, if I'm doing my math right, Toby. We weren't thinking succession at the time. I mean, we were still young Turks, and we were very happy with what we were doing. After Toby joined us, which, as he explained, was after he had worked for, uh, for Columbia National, he had worked for a a record company, and then he worked for J.P. Morgan while he was going to graduate school. So he had he had really good exposure. But when he joined us, and I saw that not only did he like what he was doing, but but he but he was good at it, and he brought a passion to it. We signed up together with John Slidell and his son Duncan for a program at the Harvard Business School on families and business. And I know there are many similar programs at other universities around the country, and I I can't speak to them. But what I can tell you is that that week that we spent at Harvard was extraordinarily beneficial to us. It was expensive, but it was very helpful to, to me, I think, to Toby. I always said the program should be subtitled how not to screw up your family because so often when people bring their children into the business, they either mess up the business or mess up the family. And and I I think the understanding that they have that the transition issues are complicated, understanding that they're not unique and that everybody is dealing with them, even under normal succession, non family succession is complicated. I think having the guidance of that program was immensely helpful for all of us. What what were the one or two key takeaways from the program that would be helpful for folks to hear? Well, I'll I'll give you one. It's the one that's probably most most important to me because it deals with when does the, and I'll call it the founder, but when does the, the, the first generation move away and turn it over to the next generation? And, and there was a case study, Harvard does everything with, case studies, as you know, and there's this great case study, as I recall, about a, a, a retail men's clothing store operator up in Connecticut who's, you know, his son worked with him in a, in a reasonably small business. 
And the guy who was running the business was, you know, as happy as he could be. He came, went to work every day, got to spend the day with his son, got to watch his son. His son was terrific. He thought life was just going to be perfect and, you know, until he died. Until one day when his son came in and said, Dad, I've just taken the job as vice president of Macy's. And his father was shocked. And the point of the case was that when a son or a daughter is in their 40s and their father is still, you know, in, in his early 60s, uh, I guess I have that wrong by a decade. So when the son or daughter is in their <laughs> 30s and the father's in their 50s and early 60s, the relationship of mentor-mentee can be a wonderful relationship. But by the time the child turns 40, and this is particularly true, I guess, with the son, and they look around and their spouse looks around and sees what their peers are doing. And they say, why, you know, the, the, the spouse in particular sort of says, why the heck doesn't the old man get out of the way or the old woman, in the case of a, of a woman CEO, and let you run the place because that's what all your peers are doing. And, and the point of the study, the point of the, of, of the case was that it may be time for the founder or the first generation or the, the leader, however you describe them, to move on, even if he's not ready to, if the risk is that he's going to lose his successor. And there was no doubt in my mind that when Toby turned 40, which was several years ago, he was ready. He was ready to take over the leadership of this company. And if I wasn't ready to step back, at some point, we were going to start bumping up against each other, which fortunately hadn't happened. And so if you really love your business, you, you need to make that kind of a uh, decision. I have to tell you that the funniest part of this whole case was as it was being presented, we got to the point where this it was announced that, that you know we were talking about the fact that the son decided to leave. The professor said, "Well, what do you all think about that?" And we were discussing it, and finally Toby stood up and said, "Well, I think the son was you know was an awfully selfish thing on the part of the son to do." At which point the professor said, "Hmm, there's somebody in the room who's the expert on this. Let's see what he thinks." <laughs> and the son, who was now a 65-year-old guy, was sitting in the back of the room, and he st and he stood <laughs> up, and he he helped us all understand the logic behind what happened. And he ultimately, <laughs> his his father did retire and let him run the business. It was stories like that, cases like that, that helped me, and I think Toby and John and Duncan sort of think through where we had to go from here. Toby, what, what was your recollection of this Harvard uh, exercise that you went through? Well, first of all, I thought I was going to make it through my dad's story without him doing the part of, of me exposing uh, the guy in the back of the room <laughs> at the end. But, but I know my dad well enough to know I, I couldn't get through this unscathed. And I was right, by the way. They, that guy was selfish, so he, he, he needed to hear it, and I'm glad I'm the one that told him. <laughs> you know, first of all, my, my father, what my father is describing is almost selfless, right? And I, I've, when people ask me what has worked about succession, in many ways, they say it's my father have, having been selfless. He stepped back, or at least uh, partially back, before he needed to in the sense that he could have kept on going, but it would not have allowed for me to proliferate 
for the company to proliferate with sort of youth or energy, which I, I hope I bring to the table. That is something that I will always be grateful to my father for. One of the other things I learned at the program was that so often succession is focused usually by a father, usually with a son. And there's this sort of logical continuum of a business where the father hands the business to the son. And it's almost preordained in some people's minds. But what doesn't happen very often is that the father, in my example, also focuses on the other partners of the organization, the other leaders within any company. So there are companies that you, you've seen, I'm sure, Charlie, where where the son or daughter may become the new CEO, but everyone failed to remember that there are many other people in the organization that are no longer interested in continuing because it's somewhat fait complete, and that the only leadership role has now been occupied by a family member. What my father and his partners did, and I'll put myself a little bit in this as well, is that we've focused on surrounding me with absolutely tremendous people that run each business line. They are my partners. They're closer to me in, in age, so they're more of my contemporaries. So I have another, call it 20, 30 years of run with a lot of these folks. So, so much of succession depends not just on focusing singularly on the CEO, but also the entirety of the organization. The word family business, it can be a beautiful thing, but it can also be very restricting to those that aren't family members, if, if not handled appropriately. Yes, and, and, and business abhors a vacuum, right? And what I recall very distinctly is that this is a succession that was talked about openly in the company. It was, I remember, Tom, you said, Toby's got to earn this, but the plan is, assuming he can step up and, and demonstrate his abilities, is to take over my position in the firm one day. And so there was no confusion in the organization. How, how important was that overt messaging to the organization, to your partners, to the company? Oh, I think it was critical. I do think it was critical. And you're right. And Charlie, as I, as I recall, in fact, I did that. I made that announcement at a uh, planning retreat with partners and with you and Gotti Kaufman, where we, we it was very clear about about that. So there there was no no doubt in anyone's mind of what was coming, the, the approximate timetable. And we've tried to make other decisions like that within the company, including some recently. One of the benefits, just to follow up on that and Toby's point, one of the benefits we have in the real estate industry that wouldn't be available to us if we were in some other industry, if we were making chairs or to go back to my earlier example, fountain pens, yeah. is when you bring people in in our business, when, when you bring when when a CEO wants to bring in partners in many enterprises, they have to be partners in the ownership of the company. We have a the opportunity in the real estate industry because most of the value is in the real estate we create to have partners who work for us who get their compensation not through an ownership of the company but instead through an ownership of the properties you create. And so what you avoid by that is the pressure that comes on a typical corporate founder from his partners who 
see when they're getting up in age their opportunity to retire and take a bunch of cash out by selling the company. And, and so we have retained the ownership of the company very, very closely. But we call this wonderful group of, of seven people. We've surrounded ourselves with people like Julie Smith and Mike Schlegel. We call them partners because they very much are partners. They are partners in the ownership of everything we create. It's an important opportunity that I think the real estate industry provides that is just generally not available in other industries. As you think back about the succession journey, and I, I think it's fair to say that it has worked out pretty well. It's not, it's not over yet, uh, right? But it's, it's right. been going very well. What's worked well? What, what was sort of challenging, right? If you had to do it over again, is there anything that you would do differently? Sort of lessons learned? I wouldn't change anything, Charlie. <laughs> That's an easy short answer. Yeah. <laughs> it went perf- it went perfectly. Yeah, so far well, so uh, good. Let me give you a an answer on what worked well. I did not want to retire. I, I hope never to retire. I think retirement is you know, my father retired but but he worked in a factory for forty five years tending machines and pretty much hated what he did every day he did it, he needed to retire. I love what I do. And so the challenge was, how do I step back, allow Toby to bring his youth, his energy, his vision without my being an impediment, but without me at the same time going away? And one of the things I did was to physically separate. I I have an office um, our office, as you know, Charlie, is in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. I got another office for myself in downtown Baltimore on the waterfront. I still go out and visit properties one to two days a week. I still come in here to our corporate office one day a week, but never more than that because I don't want anyone to have any doubts about who's running the company. So I think that is one thing that worked very well. You know, I guess. It's easier for me to think of the things that went well with it. We were very concerned about how our banks and our bonding line, we have a terrific bonding line for our construction company because we do a fair amount of third-party business now, almost half a billion dollars a year. Wasn't quite that much when I was running it, but Toby's leadership has been terrific, but it was still a lot. And And we were concerned about how our bonding company would react. Again, I think it was this notion of giving people lots of notice of what was coming, what they could expect. I also think they took some comfort that I wasn't going, you know, I wasn't buying a big sailboat and going off the coast of the Bahamas or something that I was going to be around. Those are, are things that I think worked reasonably well. We didn't lose a single one of our senior people. And again, I think it has to do with giving people lots of notice, them having worked with Toby for a long time and being comfortable with his competence and having a compensation program for them that made it worthwhile for them to stay. Toby, I don't know, maybe you've had the time as I've rambled here to think about what we could have done better. You know, like you, I have not focused necessarily on things we might have done differently where we are now is a place that I'm very comfortable. You know, when you used the bonding line as an example, and I was just thinking to myself when you were talking, I have dinner with them tomorrow night. So 
so it and then the following night I have dinner with one of our banks, both of which were relationships that you started and that my partners and I have been able to continue. And many of the things that we're doing are the exact same things that you started, which is respecting the relationship. Just as it's the same group of partners, it's the same group of service providers in, the, in this particular case. And we're doing the right thing by them. We still treat them with a tremendous amount of ethics and integrity. We do exactly what we say. We own our mistakes if there are any. And we're enjoying the very same relationships. So I think so much of succession when it works, or at least for our company, has been I'm in this enviable position of being able to leverage relationships that my father had started, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And I think it's that old expression with a big enough lever, you can move the world. I think I get to focus less on survival and more on significance, which is how do we make this company even more special than it is now that I have the luxury of starting on second base versus starting at home plate like my father did. So Toby, what advice would you give to other parents and and children that are contemplating joining a family business? To a parent, I would say that it's a slow, long game. In other words, don't put someone in a position prematurely. We've all seen that happen, and that doesn't typically work out. Nor would I suggest that anyone force their child to get into a business that they don't want to be in. I've on occasion go to lunch or or dinners with people that are in the family business. And some of them say, I didn't really want to do this. And, And my answer is, why in the heck are you doing this? So I think they need to share the passion and come to it. You know, the way that I did it was I gravitated naturally towards the business and wanted to be here. So at least for me, that's been, been terrific. Charlie, let me let me on to what Toby just said because I think I think from the parents' point of view, I would tell them to make sure the kid works someplace else. One of the things that Toby once said to me is, and, and you know, and Toby is a naturally humble person and is one of his best qualities. But one of the things that you you know that you learn and we talked about how, how how it is to learn when your name isn't on the door, when nobody, you know, the, the CEO is as much of a stranger to you as he is to everybody else. And I tell parents, and we frequently, I frequently have had this discussion with people, that if they can just have the patience and make their kid work someplace else in their industry, even in another industry, that is one one thing that I think enhances the likelihood that the youth coming into the company will have less presumption, have more ability to deal with other people who have been in the company and paid their dues and, and been around a long time. I think the second thing that I would say is if you have enough organizational structure to do this, don't let them report to you. Toby worked here 17 years before he, was it 17 or 15 before he became CEO, Toby? 15. 15, call it 15. And it was only in the last year and a half that he reported directly to me. Prior to that, he had worked for, he basically started at, at, at the bottom, 
and then worked his way up. But even as he worked his way up, he worked for other people, including my partner, Rick Mostyn. I think that's important if, you, if you've got enough people in your organization to do it. And if memory serves, Toby, you did sort of a rotation to all of the, all of the major food groups within the, the company to get that kind of perspective. Sort of, Charlie. I, you know, when I was younger, my, my father had me work in the field, I think, to show me how hard people work and how grateful I should ultimately be, which I am for a wonderful education. But I spent the majority of my time in our development company, starting as an analyst and working my way through the ranks, ultimately running the development company. And because my experience had been somewhat siloed in that it was mostly development, my father created almost a bifurcated position that didn't exist before. We created the position of president. He had been president before, but he separated it. And I was the president of the organization for two years, and that allowed me time to learn about the other divisions before I took on this role. And candidly, those two years were some of the most exciting years I've ever had because I recognized not only the nuances of each business line, but what a beautiful business we have and that it's vertically integrated and that there's just so many moving parts to this company. So now being in this role, overseeing the totality of the company, I have a much better position to understand it. As you think about, uh, Toby, how, how you've had to navigate the relationship with Tom in all of its dimensions, right? He's, he's your father. He was your he was your boss, or, or at least the leader of the company at one point, and, and, and now he's your partner. That's something they don't really teach you in, in Harvard Business School or anywhere else, is that when you're in a family business, I think your relationship has changed forever. The second you walk through that door, and you, I don't think you could unchange it, candidly. In our case, that's been probably the best thing that's ever happened to us in the sense that I've got... I've had the opportunity to work with my with my dad now for, as we mentioned, 17 years and hopefully many, many more. So we're much closer than I think we might have ever been. But if it didn't work out that way, you can't, we pretend to sit at the Thanksgiving table and not want to talk about work. And we'll start whispering to each other until my, my wife or, or my mother starts screaming at us. <laughs> but you can't change the relationship changes forever. And again, in our case, it's been incredible, but I can imagine that it, it could really be harmful. So there's a lot more at stake than a boss subordinate relationship, a lot more at stake, but there's a lot more joy too. So, so family business or otherwise, Toby, what advice would you give to someone going into a leadership position for the first time? Leadership is to me, I, I learn about it every day. In fact, my dad and I were talking about it this morning on the way to work on the phone. The people see from the outside, being a leader appears to be this wonderful thing where you're on the top of the world. And I remember my father telling me once that sometimes leadership feels like an inverted pyramid where instead of being at the top, you're, you're, you're the recipient of every problem and every negative thing. <laughs> Admittedly, you're the recipient of every wonderful thing, too. So I wouldn't trade it for the world. But I go to bed at night and I think about not if I'm making a lot of money or a little bit of money or what kind of notoriety I have. I think instead about 2,600 people that work for, for us. 
and the responsibility I have not only to them, but to their extended family. And that how small decisions or big decisions that I make may directly or will directly impact them. So I see it as a tremendous honor, but also a tremendous responsibility. I would recommend that people understand that leadership is a very nuanced thing. It's wonderful, but it it comes with a, a lot of pressure as well. So did you find the the forced banishment and I'm and I'm kidding, but you know the 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 mantra to go and have a career and and a um experiences outside of the family business was that helpful or were you just waiting for the time to be done? For me it was tremendously helpful and and to my father's previous point, I every time I meet someone looking to go into the family business, I say go figure it out first on your own. Try to get a modicum of success under your own belt. For me, I was able to train at this company, Columbia National, and I learned a tremendous amount from the mentors I had there. And when I was in graduate school and working concurrently at J.P. Morgan, I I was was learning from tremendously interesting people there as well. So by the time I joined the organization, even though I started as an analyst, or as we call it, an associate, I had a bit of confidence in my own ability that I didn't just get it because I was the son or the daughter. I got it because I was every bit as capable, uh, hopefully more, than someone else in that same position. So if nothing else, it gives the son confidence to do that. So I'd recommend it completely. So the the listeners of the podcast don't get the benefit of, of, of seeing you all, but probably the succession was made easier by the fact that you are Toby, the spitting image of your father. Now, y- younger and more handsome, of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I mean, if they could see me, they'd think I'd, I was more handsome, but we'll just have to leave that to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but Tom, how is Toby's leadership style different or similar to yours? I mean, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. I think, you know, it really is an interesting question because we both I'm both very, very thoughtful about it. We both have, have tended to do a lot of reading about it. I, I will tell you, I think our reading has been different. We both read business books, Toby probably more than me. I, on the other hand, am an a, a, a avid reader of, of uh, biographies of, um, of great leaders, um, and including some who history hasn't necessarily treated kindly, like Napoleon, who you know was by any standard an extraordinary leader. I, and I think you can learn from people um, like that, people like Churchill, that helps you think about how to hone your style. I think we both have a style of leadership by caring, if you will. I mean, I think the people, the individuals in the company know we think of them as individuals. We think, know, you know, Toby's use of my metaphor before about the inverted pyramid. I feel, at least I used to, that's one of the best things is that, that Toby now has to worry about it. But I used mm-hmm. to feel like I had this pyramid of families living, you know, and, and making their living and all as a part of this company that if I screwed it up, uh, the whole thing would come tumbling down. So I, I think I think leadership is involved involves understanding that responsibility, understanding that these are human beings who are really no different than you are. 
except maybe that you've had better luck than they've had in some cases or been willing to take risks that they weren't. But they're dependent on you, just as you are dependent on them. It's really a team, and you just happen to be captain for the day, so don't screw it up. And, and, and I, I mean, I think we both approach the business that way. Toby, do you find yourself channeling Tom, or do you do things very differently? I, I, I think I channel his ethos. I think I channel his values. And he started this podcast by talking about how he has always believed, in, and now I do as well, that we're in the business of creating sanctuary for our residents. We don't just create apartment buildings that we sell. And so we believe there's a nobility of purpose in what we do. So if we have this greater calling or this greater thesis, we may lead a little bit differently, but we're leading towards the same goal. I have not attempted to mimic my father intentionally. I'm sure there's some things subconsciously I do, but I most certainly mimic his value system. With respect to my style, it's, you know, we're all, we're all different, but I think at the end of the day, we are both extremely focused more on others than we are ourselves and more on doing right by our associates, our partners, and our residents. It's very personal to both of us. In that way, you are both uh, branches from the same tree. We, so, we, Let me go back to one of the earlier questions you asked about how what we focused on in starting the company, and it, it really does, uh, Charlie, tie into what Toby was just saying. And I'm not throwing stones. Oxford was a very successful company. It was in the top 10 builders of, the, of apartments in the country for years and years. So I, I don't mean to be throwing stones. But but one of Oxford had a style of management that was based on rules. There were lots and lots of rules. There were volumes of notebooks containing rules on how one was to operate an apartment property. Nobody ever read them except when they wanted to fire somebody. So they were only used as a hammer. I mean, I, you know, I think they were primarily used to throw at people. When we started our company, we were determined to create a values-based company where we could tell people what values we expected them to live by and know that we didn't have to create lots of rules because we couldn't anticipate every situation. So we came up with, at the time, we did this four values, and they're still the same four values that they that govern the company today, concern, creativity, passion, and perfection. And I would like to believe that every employee of the company, all 2,700 people, would be able to recite those values and tell you what they mean. That's that when we hire, and it's been the case for 30 years, or when we hire, we look for people who live by those values. I was once asked why it is that when you go from one of our properties in one place to another property, you know, 100 miles away, you feel like you're in the same place and people treat you the same way and they're the same kinds of people working there. And I answered and repeated many times since that it's a lot easier. We hire nice people. It's a lot easier to hire nice people and teach them skills than it is to hire skilled people and try and teach them to be nice. You know, and that's really governed our hiring policies for years. 
that approach of looking for people who share our values, who share our passion, who want our customers to have an extraordinary experience, who want to build a building they can be proud of. And and I can tell you from from perspective from outside the company that uh, you you all live your values and and people seek out the company as a very special place to work. So uh, kudos for that. Well, thank you, thank you. Let me switch gears a little bit away from succession and leadership and and ask you, Tom, kind of what are some of the factors that have changed your business and in, in, in your career over the last pick it ten, fifteen, twenty years or so, and how do you see these sort of changes affecting your business in the future? I think. Charlie, the most significant change that has occurred in our industry, maybe in American industry generally, has been the changing behavior of the millennial generation relative to the predecessors. When I got into this business, and you know, through certainly through the 80s and 90s, we were building apartments that were largely intended to be a way station between when the the people would leave in between college and when they, you know, at at 24, 25 years old, got got married and started having kids and bought their suburban house. That was the case. And and those properties were in the suburbs. But what has changed is that we had this whole population that, that started coming out of college in 2005 or so and that wanted to live in the cities. And in fact, were postponing marriage until their mid-30s and postponing childbirth until they were in their mid-30s. And, and I, you know, there's no doubt that has driven the demand. It, it drove the homeownership to rental ratio from 70% homeownership down to 64 three, 63 and a half that it is today. It has filled all of the apartments that we've been building in urban areas. While the suburban demand remains strong, it's, it's, it's a demand for a different type of product to a significant degree. It's, it's, a, it's a product that has urban-like amenities around it. And how do I see that changing? I think is it's an open question as to whether those folks now, as they marry, will be following in their parents' footsteps and moving into the suburbs. I believe some will, but I think there are many, I guess I'll say there's just many, who, having lived in urban areas for a very long period of time, have gotten spoiled by the ease of living in cities and will find some way to continue living in towns. So I think that that focus on the customer has probably they, that the type of customer has dominated the change that's affected our industry in the past ten years. There are a number of other changes. You know, when Toby first talked to us about coming into the business, the apartment industry was not a very popular place for a young person to join. In the 1990s, everybody wanted to work on Wall Street or in a tech company, and it was. It was a little unusual for somebody to want to join a real estate company. There weren't a lot of them at that point. In the past decade, that's that has changed as well. There are a lot of people who want to work in real estate. So the number, particularly in the middle part of this decade, we have had a, the luxury of having our choice of candidates to work on in this industry. 
as a result, some really good people have joined us. So you spent a career really focusing on uh, sort of younger 20-something-year-olds versus boomers and, and then millennials. Seems like the boomers maybe are, are, are coming back uh, to us again. I know you guys are thinking a lot about the affluent renters by choice returning from homeownership back into the rental market. Can you, Toby, can you talk about what you guys are doing in that regard? Sure. We've created a brand, for lack of a better word, called Canvas, and it's a 55-plus apartment opportunity for people. It's not independent living, nor nor is it assisted living. It's it's a very elegant apartment living. So it, it affords people that are 55 and older the opportunity to live in a building that's perhaps not populated by millennials and music and all of these things, but instead is more catered to their lifestyle. And we've begun to deliver these projects. We just delivered one in Valley, our first one in Valley Forge in Pennsylvania. And it's been very, very successful so far. At the end of the day, though, I think this pursuit of sanctuary of we're all the same. Younger people want are aspirational and they want to be older and older people are aspirational and want to be younger. So at the end of the day, I think we're we're, we're just trying to deliver a product or a home for people and an experience for people and having a management company that can continue what a developer finishes when they deliver a building. And, and we, we call it the, the creating extraordinary experiences for, for our residents. I guess what I'm trying to say is at the end of the day, I think we're all very similar in that if you can connect with people's heart and with their emotions, I believe we can not only be successful, but perhaps more successful than some of our excellent competitors because we're focused on our customer at the end of the day and what moves them and what drives them, regardless of whether they're a millennial or a baby boomer. And it's very, very similar. It's that connection to, to what we do. And I think that's allowed our company to enjoy the success that it has. So you're also very disciplined in your approach to the business and with the help of RCLCO and others, you routinely go through a strategic planning process and sort of think about where you are and, and where you're going. Toby, as you look ahead to Pazuto in 2030, what is your vision for the company? Well, to your point, RCLCO has been extremely helpful. I think it's important for any business to do not only an annual plan, business plan, but also to contemplate five, 10-year plans. Unfortunately, I think when you go past five years out, you're only... It might be idealistic what you want to do, but the world changes so quickly that it's hard hard to know go beyond five years. That being said, my first goal with our company is to create a sustainable multi-generational business. So I very much feel like I'm the steward of this business in its second generation, and my goal is to keep it healthy and strong and pass it on to a third and whatever form that is. Secondly, I think, if in the next 10 years, using your example, we can continue to grow our company in significance and build incredibly important communities and treat people incredibly well, in other words, doing the right thing and creating an impact on the world. You know, my dad reads books, as he mentioned, he reads biographies about people that have made a difference in the world. I happen to collect rare books and I collect rare books by people that have moved the world in their lifetime. So if we can just impact the world in some de minimis way, or even bigger in our lifetime, to me, that's what it's all about. 
So you'll notice nowhere in there did I mention money or profit. I, whereas those things are important and, and most certainly drivers to some degree, we believe in something a little higher than that. So you piqued my interest. I, I need to know now what is one of your the favorite books in your collection? <laughs> I have so many. It's like, it's like picking a, a favorite child. I have a, oh, a I could, oh, I could do that easily. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, don't ask my dad to do that with me on the phone. But I, I have books signed from everyone from Nelson Mandela to Amelia Earhart to Babe Ruth. But I recently purchased a letter that Albert Einstein wrote to his uh, sister, and they had an incredible correspondence. And I, in that letter, I he talks about everything from the pressures of his success to his hair turning gray. And I thought that that was a wonderful because we picture him as this very iconic guy with crazy hair, right? And he too seemed to suffer from the pressure of being who he was, but also at the same time realized what a blessing it was to be in the position that he was. Good lesson for a leader. Tom, as chairman, usually the job description is thinking about strategery, as they say, right? right. And not in the, the day-to-day operations. What, what, is, what is your continuing long-term vision for the Bazuto Group? Well, I think, I think, Charlie, that what has been our biggest strength is that when we started the company, we decided we didn't want to be just a development company like, you know, that would be around when there was money available and when there was no money, we'd lay people off and just do nothing. We wanted to be the best operating company around and have that, have our management company lead in our thinking and make that would and 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 guiding our development and even take and, and keeping an eye on our construction activities. The theory was they have the 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 greatest focus on what the customer wants. And I think as I look forward for the company, that focus is the thing that we will have to maintain as we grow our geography. I looked at Toby for the ambition for the company, and there's no doubt he would like the company to get larger than we have. I was content with being relatively regional, although I did want to push us up into Boston, but we're now in Boston, Chicago, Florida. Toby is pushing a a national expansion over time. I think keeping our focus as first and foremost an operating company will allow us to overcome the obstacle we have as a private company because we have clear disadvantages relative to our public competitors in terms of access to capital. And we have to offset that by something. And I, we've been able to offset it. I think we can continue to offset it by having this, this laser-like focus on the customer. You know, and what our experience has been is that if you do that, whether you're talking about the customer who lives in your apartment or the customer for whom you manage an apartment or build an apartment or partner with, that over time you will make money and will continue to grow and continue to be more profitable. 
And I, I think that philosophy has worked pretty well, and I suspect it's going to continue to do so as we expand. And Toby, going concern, is there, is there a Gen 3 that uh, is on the way into the company? I don't know, man. My 13-year-old daughter certainly knows <laughs> how to get people to do things for her, so she might be a, a natural leader. But we, you know, my sister has three children. I have three children. You just never know. And uh, again, right? I'm we're, I'm going to focus just like my dad did on the core competency of the business and and keeping our head down with humility every day. And if I'm blessed to have that problem in the future as to who could take over, right now I'm just trying to get us get us around the track again. I'm confident that that will happen. Charlie, there's, um, as we're, we're winding down here, there's one part of the conversation that bothers me a little bit that I'd like to go back to. And um, you, sure. you, you asked us what mistakes we thought we had made in the transition, and we answered both Toby and I as if, if we as if we have not made any mistakes. And I, yeah, I think we were very successful with the transition, but God knows we make mistakes every day, and I don't want anybody listening to this to think that we don't realize that and you know i'll tell you one of the biggest mistakes i made and i made it was we we have as some of your listeners may know a small home building operation we build a couple of hundred homes a year and frankly we made a lot of money in that business from 1995 to 2005 but I recognized in 2006, in fact, even got up and gave a speech at NAHB headquarters about this, that, you know, home prices had doubled between 2000 and 2005 or six in the Washington area, and that incomes hadn't. And I made the point in that speech that this was clearly leading us to a fairly major bust. And we should all be prepared for it. And then I went back to my office and ignored everything I had just said and continued to support our home building division's request for new projects as if, you know, there were sort of two people, the intellectual or thoughtful Tom Pizzuto and and the the practical one running the business. And and I think the lack of guts on my part, um, the lack of the discipline to say what I my my predictions are right and I'm going to shut this thing uh, I'm going to slow this thing down it cost us a great deal of money and was one of the dumbest things I've ever done so I hope I've learned from it but it's you know I I just want to make sure nobody listening to this thinks that we don't understand that that we probably make a mistake a day at least and I think anybody who lived through that period will will remember that uh, you were not alone <laughs> in ignoring what should have been some obvious signals, but um, hard hard to do in the moment. I understand. I understand. Well, listen, we are approaching the end of conversations with the best minds in real estate, and I just wanted to thank uh, both of you, Tom, Toby, for being on the podcast. It's been an honor and a pleasure talking with you today. I feel like we covered a lot of subjects. I will look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. Thank you, Charlie. This is our pleasure, our honor. Right, Tope? Yeah, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it, Charlie. 
We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCLCo. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.